everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. I'm your host, Paul Connor. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be talking to one of the most interesting people that I have had the pleasure of meeting in my time in academia. Um, just a very interesting, fascinating guy with a very interesting story to tell. Um, yeah, so uh, my guest today is, I guess, former scholar. Alex Kogan. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. And look, once a scholar, always a scholar. I don't want the former label. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You are a scholar and a gentleman um, still. So uh, if my listeners know of you at all, um, they may know of you as this shady, mysterious Russian academic at the heart of the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but I, uh, we'll get to that. We'll definitely, that's what I want to discuss with you. But I also wanted to just ask you to take us through kind of your origin story, because I, I think it's quite interesting. I know you moved to the States from Russia when you were quite young and then uh, had somewhat of a meteoric rise through academia to end up as a quite a young professor of psychology at Cambridge University in the UK. So, yeah, just talk us through that. Um, what is the, the Alex Kogan origin story? Yeah, totally. So I was born in this uh, tiny, tiny Soviet satellite called Moldova, um, smaller than New Jersey. And uh, by seven years old, Soviet Union has fallen apart. It's 1994. And my family got really lucky that we could get out. Um, it was largely because my dad's side is Jewish. We're getting some uh, death threats out in Russia because like Jews, not so popular. Um, and, uh, but like, fortunately we got a visa into the United States and we got out here. So moved out to the United States, lived in Brooklyn for a few years, then moved out to Northern Jersey, um, and kind of had a middle-class upbringing, right? Like we were really poor when we first got to the United States, but I think my parents did like an incredible job of like living the American dream, like working really hard and like climbing in like SES and just getting to a really good spot. And so, you know. Graduated from really great public school. Uh, yeah, right. What did what did your parents do? Yeah, mm -hmm. so my dad was a software engineer, and uh, my mother uh, does fashion. So um, she's the more entrepreneurial one in the family, where she's owned her own business for many years and just uh, yeah, just does really high end alterations and designs. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so fast forward, uh, and we're like, I think my journey really started to pick up steam was when I got to Berkeley. And uh, I remember I got to Berkeley and I was going to be an astrophysics major. And because uh, I really loved astrophysics, that was kind of my big passion as a, as a high schooler and a middle schooler. Uh, but I was also kind of really interested in this psychology thing. Um, I had a few friends that had gone through some like rather difficult episodes during high school. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do clinical psychology, which is I think a very common clinical psychology origin story. Um, but then I met this uh, professor named Dagger Keltner, and he was actually pretty life-changing for me because um, he took this really young, naive, but super energetic kid and said, you know what? Come join my lab and learn about like, things like happiness and kindness and love. How uh, did you two meet? Yeah. So there was an advisor in the psychology department, and this is my first semester, right? So, and I had uh, gotten to know this advisor because I was a little overzealous. I was like, I want to take 20 credits worth of classes, right? And she's like, no, I will not let you do this. This is stupid. Okay, like, oh. okay. So this, this overzealousness 
maybe a recurring theme <laughs> as, we, uh, as we go through your story. It's a, yeah, <laughs> recurring motif. Um, and she's like, no, we're not going to let you do that. But then one day I was like walking around campus, you know, being 18, 19 and thinking, man, there's a difference between loving somebody and being loved. I've never heard that discussed. And I email her. I'm like, hey, what do I do with this? Like, I want to do research on it, but I have no idea where to begin. And she said, go talk to Professor Keltner. And so I came to him. I'm like, I've got this idea. I don't know what to do. He's like, okay, go work in my lab for a couple of years and uh, we'll teach you how to do research. And then we'll do this honors thesis, right? Uh, and that's what I did. And I think the most formative experiences I had in Berkeley were really in uh, Dacker Keltner's lab. Um, fell in love with the study of the pro-social. Uh, started out with the research project on laughter. We got into things like touch and kindness. And it was awesome. It was awesome. So, not, I mean, not many undergrads just get invited to join a lab. Like, I'm in Dacker's lab now. There, there are no undergrads, like, coming to lab meetings and stuff like that. So, what... Why do you think he um, just sort of invited you into the fold like that? I think uh, if you asked him, I think he would say that he just saw somebody with a, a lot of energy and positivity and sort of like goofiness. Right? <laughs> you know, like Dak would say, you know, I'm like the big fella. I've got big hair, big shorts, big ideas, right? Like, he's always got to tease me like that. Um, but he, so he took me and he assigned me to one of his PhD students, um, Chris Ovius. And he's like, Chris, like, just work with him, right? And at that point, Chris ran a pretty big undergrad team. There was like t- maybe 20 undergrad research assistants working with Chris, doing a lot of behavioral coding. Uh, it's a different time. Um, but I think what, like, led me to kind of... Um, climb within the lab were, was that I got really into it. So I spent 20, 30 hours a week just in the lab, like working away, doing whatever needed. Uh, but I also really like math. You know, the astrophysics side of me made me like non-math phobic. So we'd be like, oh, we need to learn multi-level uh, uh, modeling, right? To do some of these analyses for this data sets. Alex, here's a textbook, go knock it out. Um, I got into coding because we needed to do this like daily diary study. So I'm like, all right, I'll learn how to like code and build us a, a piece of software that could do it because like Qualtrics and SurveyMonkey couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that was like the formation of the kind of my skill set, uh, but also kind of my worldview. Um, and, and so then, you know, I got done with Berkeley. I did it in three years and um, I decided to go do something Dacker that was a terrible idea. Like, truly, like, terrible idea. And he was mostly right. Uh, I decided to go do my PhD in Hong Kong. And he said, like, you can't do this, right? Like, you could stay, he, you know, this is an inside story. But Dacker said I had two choices. He said, you could do your PhD at Berkeley or you could go to Harvard. Those, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, but th- there was a girl involved as a, as a common, uh, another motif in my life. And, uh, so I followed her to Hong Kong. It didn't work out with the girl, but I had a really great experience in Hong Kong. Um, I had a really great uh, PG supervisor there. Um, Wait, I got which to... girl? Which girl? So was this like somebody you met at, at Berkeley? Berkeley? Yeah, I met her at Berkeley. Move, moving back to, to Hong Kong. And... Yeah. Okay, so you... Oh, all right. So, I mean, th- I, 
there's good schools in Hong Kong, right? Like it's yeah. not it's not totally crazy the idea that you can go get a PhD in Hong Kong. I think like I guess like it it's pretty unusual though. Like if you are focused on research, you want you want to work with, at the biggest name school you can with the biggest name researcher you can. So I, I guess I can see why Dhaka um, <laughs> because it's not it's definitely not the usual track, but um, yeah, yeah. So it's that's unusual. I think the other thing that's unusual. Um, is the time. So I did my PhD in three years, right? So like I was through undergrad and my PhD in a six-year sprint, whereas that's a normal PhD in the United States, right? Um, and what you, what you get is obviously time. Like you get, it's less time. What you lose out is like publications just take a while, right? Everybody uh, that is in academia knows that, right? It just takes a nice long while to get a body of workout. So when you're going so fast, it's you're just gonna come out typically without enough publications under your belt um, to get a job and be competitive. Yeah, but then again, I mean, you you've been quite professionally uh, successful. I, I feel like if you go super fast, you can just sort of brand yourself as well. I'm a, I'm a whiz kid. Like, and you can do, I'm not, probably not many people can do that, but like, oh, I went through undergrad in three years. I went and did a PhD in three years. People are like, oh, this guy's something different. Let's, let's interview this guy. Yeah. So, so you definitely get a little bit of that, right? Um, the, so the reason I was able to be like relatively successful was that because I spent three years basically being locked up in Dacker's lab. I didn't really have an undergrad experience. I almost had like an early graduate experience because um, I was just there and I got my name on papers, right? And we collect a lot of data. And so like even by the time I was applying for jobs, so like I did my PhD in three years and then I did a one-year postdoc in Toronto. But by the time I was applying for jobs, I had, you know, 10, 12 publications under my belt um, with a few first authors in like pretty good places. So I think it was because I got lucky being in Dacker's lab um, and it was such a good fit. Um, I was able to shortcut it. And then the other thing is like, look, I got some luck with publications, right? I got, I had a PNAS paper came out. Um, and anybody that's published also knows like, whether you get into science, PNAS, or, you know, a second or third tier journal, partially quality of work, heavily the luck and sort of who are your reviewers and all of that good stuff. Right. Um, so that was really helpful. Okay, so what's okay? So you finished the PhD in Hong Kong in three years. Yeah. Now you've bro- broken up with this girl. Yes. Uh, by then, um, and you're applying to academic jobs now. Um, yeah. And so, who who is Alex Kogan as a researcher at this point? Like, what's your pitch? Like, what do you when you're applying in your letter? It's like, what what do you do? Yeah. So I'm a pro social researcher, right? I study the positive side of humanity. I study things like caption. Uh, uh, compassion, altruism, love. Um, and I do it at sort of everywhere from the psychological level all the way down to the biological level. So we were looking at things like the oxytocin receptor genes, the vagus nerve, right? Uh, so a very mo- uh, mixed method approach. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. So um, at that point, I know um, you spent some time at University of Toronto. Was that yeah. the next stop? That was my postdoc. So um, I went and joined a Dacker Keltner lab alum, who is now an assistant professor there. And I had met her during my undergrad days, right? So, you know, all kind of tracks back down to that, that time. Um, 
And who, who, who is this? Uh, Emily and Pat. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So, and she, Emily is amazing, right? One of the top relationship researchers in the world. Um, so she invited me to come join her and uh, I spent a year there um, and then just took a flyer. This, uh, this job, I applied for a couple of jobs in my first year, but I didn't have like a lot of expectations of being competitive yet. Uh, and also I was like legitimately really nervous about the impact of the University of Hong Kong as a PhD rather than like the Berkeleys and the, the Harvards of the world, right? Um, like, I didn't know. Um, so, but the, the Cambridge came along and they decided to interview me. And uh, I thought this is really educational in that like, I discovered that like, yes, brands matter, but like not that much. Where ultimately they decided to interview me because they saw a PNAS paper and they had heard, read like uh, news articles about it. And so that was really cool. Um, so that opened the door. And I think for folks that aren't necessarily at the Harvards and Berkeleys of the world, there's still a ton of opportunities if you do really great work. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, ni- nice humble brag about about your great work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Yeah, if you do great work, like I uh, did, good call. Uh, good you call. Can, um, if you if you no, uh, I, win the the lottery in terms of publications, I think that's more appropriate. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. So, you get a job at Cambridge, and how old are you at this point? I'm 26. Just turned 20, 26. 26. And what what year? Was that? 2012. 2012. Okay. So at Cambridge, uh, (laughs) something quite interesting happens. Um, You get involved with uh, social media data, specifically Facebook data. um, And eventually it ends up being massive scandal. Um, You tank Facebook stock by $100 billion in a single day. Uh, not not solely just because of you, but like you played a role in it. Um, yeah, what 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 happened? <laughs> just tell me, tell me, like in uh, like in a lot of detail. I pretty much know the broad contours of the yeah. story, but just like how the heck did you manage to wipe a hundred billion dollars off Facebook's shares? Uh, <laughs> it was a surprise to me as well. Uh, so I got to Cambridge, right? And let's think about the context of that time. So it's 2012, and we're like at the peak of both the replication crisis and like the weird crisis of like where social psychologists had woken up to the fact that like, man, we're not sure that like anything we're doing is anything other than like the the history of a very specific group of people, you know, young well-educated, mostly liberal uh, people who are studying psychology at top universities in the United States. Um, and almost, and we could make anything an effect, right? So Daryl Bam had just published his ESP paper, right? Like, that was sort of the, the, the times, right? And I think there was a lot of conversation during my uh, postdoc here in Toronto, but like, how can we do better, right? How do we get beyond student samples? How do we get beyond, uh, like, small samples of like, you know, 30 per cell. So I get to uh, Cambridge with kind of a lot of this sort of in the back of my mind. Um, And I start hearing from a couple of sources about sort of the interesting work people are doing with Facebook data. So at Cambridge, there was another lab that had collected this pretty immense, like 4 million person uh, data set of like 
Big Five questionnaire plus the uh, Facebook data. Is that um, my personality? What's his name? M- M- Mihal? Yeah, Mihal Kaczynski. Uh, so uh, his collaborator, uh, David Stilwell, had actually collected it, but him and Mihal were working on publishing things. Um, and then uh, I had a postdoc who uh, was another Dr. Keltner alum who, came, who joined me at uh, Cambridge as my postdoc. He just finished his PhD in Oxford. And he had been like really interested in Facebook data and doing some of the work there. So I'm like, And who is, who is this? Uh, Elmo. Do you know Elmo? No, actually. Yeah, Elmo. Um, El, he, does he have more than one name or are we actually talking about a Sesame Street? No, no, no. He has more than one name. We'll keep him a little confidential. Okay, um, okay cool. So like the... So, Mihal, am I saying that right? Michal? Yeah, Mihal. So their their papers. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it was kind of about like, hey, can we predict people's personalities yeah. from you know what Facebook pages what they page like or something yeah. like? Yeah. Okay. Right. So I had very little interest in that particular line of research, right? Because how did they get that data though? By the way, four million is quite a, yeah. a lot. So what happened was David, like in the mid two thousands, just when Facebook apps were first coming out. He made like a really simple app, which was a personality test. And it went a little viral where people would fill out a personality test and they would get like their scores back to the big five. But as part of it, he would, people would authorize him to collect their Facebook data. So he would just collect a bunch of stuff. Um, so it was uh, that, like, it was tremendous, right? Like coming off the replication crisis, it's just like, whoa, this is like the total opposite. Um, and so I worked a little bit with their data set. And then at that point, we're able to make a connection directly into Facebook uh, to work one of their with one of their teams, the Protect and Care team, um, and it's all kind of around this same stuff that like I was really interested in, which is like compassion and love and kindness and altruism, uh, happiness, life expectancy. Right, those are the constructs we're really going after. Um, and uh, Facebook provided a pretty neat data set where they're like at the country level. Here's information on every friendship in the world. Where how many friendships are created every single month between people within a country and uh, outside of the country, right? Um, It was really, really neat. But that stuff was great, right? Like, this was a completely different direction methodologically for me. Um, But it answered a lot of my major concerns uh, from, like, how do we study people, not just, like, the North American undergrad, um, but still get access to sort of the same sort of questions that I was interested in as a pro-social researcher. So... As we kind of went on the journey, we're like, well, we've got this really rich country-level data set from Facebook, but like we're psychologists, so we should really also be thinking about individual effects. So like, okay, well, let's just make a Facebook app. Um, and, you know, uh, the My Personality Project was a good example of that. And like, there are many things out there like that, right? Like at that point, there were like hundreds of thousands of Facebook apps where people were collecting data and in exchange for something, right? Yeah, yeah. So... Anybody could anybody could make an app, um, and you know you're you're providing something, right? Like every every Facebook app is ostensibly providing something, and you know, like when users uh, sort of download the app or whatever or start using the app, they're sort of clicking through, yeah, sure, you, you know, terms of service, all this stuff that nobody ever reads, and you can have my data. So, like, but one key thing, and it sounds like this was probably the case for David when he was collecting the data as well, is that back then you were giving app developers access not only to your data, but to your friends' data as, data well. as yeah. well. 
Yeah, so I think the theory at that point was that if there's data about, so like imagine you and I are Facebook friends, right? And if I could see stuff on your Facebook page because we're friends, then I should be able to share it because it's not private, right? I um, <laughs> like so if you like if you I do see. yeah if you do sort of the mind experiment, imagine you did a study of like where you had people fill out a survey of like fill in the name of all of your friends on Facebook, so you could go and do that, two hundred of them. Now go to each of your Facebook pages of the each Facebook friend and tell me all about the page likes. You could also do that, right? That data is available. So this was like. The how many people? Work. How many people would do that? Um, <laughs> like, almost everybody. Oh yeah, nobody would do this. That study. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I imagine not a lot of folks would be uh, willing to do that particular uh, task. But you know, that would be an interesting experiment. Like, <laughs> go to all your friends, or just choose a couple. Tell me every single page they like. I think like that would throw up a bit of a red flag to people. Like, huh. I'm not sure my friend maybe I should I should check with them but but anyway like the point is like that it it was just such an exponential um multiplier increase in in how much data you could get because one person signs up for your app exactly and you get uh hundreds hundreds of data points yeah. right and I guess that's what that's how David ended up with four million and you must have I don't know how like how many so David's was a little different. He actually got 4 million people to authorize his app. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And fill out a personality test. It was a really impressive data set. For us, we were running small studies, right? We would get one or 2,000 people on MTurk to go fill out a survey about, you know, emotions or inequality or happiness and things like that, and then authorize the app. And then we would get their data and then collect their friends' data. And the friends' data we were using for, like, different things, right? Like... So one paper we were writing, it was about uh, how international is your friend set, right? So you can measure that by saying like, well, you're from this country. Now look at the locations of all of your friends. Where are they? Does it match or not? Um, and we have this kind of finding that like uh, people with higher uh, SES tended to have, I think, less international friends, which is kind of surprising, right? Uh, I think that was a finding. It might have been the total opposite. I think we set up competing <laughs> hypotheses. It's been a while. Um, but those are the kind of things we're doing. And I think that the interesting bit here, and this just speaks to the time of all this, was we were like getting ethics approval for all these studies. It wasn't like we were like just cowboying. You know, I'm a, I'm generally was a very careful scientist where let's go get ethics approval. Let's not do anything that would be unethical. Um, and so the... And we didn't really get a flag race. I think we went through three uh, ethics applications without really many issues. Uh, later on, we got some flags raised, but that's, you know, a little bit later in the story. So we collected like this smallish data set, right? A few thousand people had authorized the app, I think maybe 20,000 at most, um, collected their friends' data, all sort of for the lab, and we're writing these papers. And uh, that was really cool, really exciting, right? We kind of saw that like this is really new for social psychology. It wasn't so new for other areas, but for like our field was really new. Answered the call of the, how do we do more replicable science? Um, and then one day, one of the PhD students in my department came by to my stats office hours. And he was like, hey, um, I'm, I've been consulting for this company. And this company was called SCL, uh, which is the precursor to Cambridge Analytica. And like, I'd love for you to meet my buddy, Chris. 
right? I'm like, okay, sure. You know, like I'm generally like uh, happy to meet somebody. And so I met Chris and it was uh, another one of those like life altering meetings, uh, just kind of like an opposite way of from Dakar. Because this is how we got into this <laughs> rabbit hole going down, right? We've been on the incline here, you know. Uh, great things have happened so far. You know, did my PhD fast, did my undergrad fast, got this incredible job. At, uh, honestly, my it was my dream job. Like, uh, as I'm a physics nerd uh, first. Like, all the top physicists came through Cambridge, right? I remember uh, when I showed up to work. I was in the old Cavendish Laboratory, and that building is amazing because it's the most scientifically decorated building in the world. Over 20 Nobel Prize winners have worked there. <laughs> and like, you know, uh, Watson and Crick, right, just as an example, uh, I think they discovered the electron there, just like on and on and on. So really impressive. Um, so, but this, this becomes the, the descent. So I meet Chris, and Chris tells me the story about how he used to work for the Obama campaign. And man, they did all these really interesting behavioral studies, but it really upset me because they put it all in a vault, right? They didn't share it with academics. And he was like, I really want to share data with academics. And I've been collecting these data sets um, for the projects we're doing at SCL, but I'd love to share them with you, right? And like, uh, and you know, just give us some consulting time. So this was like a great character for me. Right. I had just been working with all this Facebook data. I'm like, oh, this is other data that like companies seem to all have. Like, okay, great. We could add that and again, further data sets to study the population rather than isolated. So that conversation quickly morphed into them thinking, you know, we really want to get our, uh, our hands on the my personality data set. Because I had told them about the my personality data set, and they weren't interested in the Facebook side at first. They just wanted the personality scores because they had this thesis that, like, oh, like if we knew people's personalities, it would help us with campaigns. And uh, I think David very astutely decided I can't share that data set with them. Um, and David decided that because he's like, well, look, I had told people when I collected the data it was for academic purposes. So I can't really, in good conscience, share it with you guys, right? Totally the right decision. Um, and at that point, we're like kind of all collectively said like, oh, wait, but there's another way we could do this. What if we like collected people's Facebook data and then we could make predictions about their personality? Because this was really based on the work David and Michal had done of like um, make those predictions. And like everybody got really excited and off we went on this project, right? Um Along the way, David and Michal fell out of the project. So I ended up just having to do it on my own. Um, but that was okay, right? Like, it wasn't too hard. And so we went, and basically the deal was Cambridge Analytica, right, would pay for this collection of this big data set. And it was going to be, I don't know, a few hundred thousand people would fill out a survey. And I would get to keep all of that data. All I had to do was like collect it and then build some personality models and deliver to them these predictions, right? And so this was sort of the genesis of this kind of like infamous data set. Um, so we Wait, went. I'm confused. Yeah, let's back up. Okay, so I'm confused. So at this point, where is this data supposedly coming from? Pre-existing Facebook data or Brand new. data that you were going to go get? It was data data we're going to go get. But how did I mean? How do you know you're going to be like, is it that easy to build an app that thousands yeah. of people? Ah, okay. okay. Like so, so, so this, this story, this part of the story is easy. 
there's a lot of people willing to fill out surveys for a few dollars, right? So we went to Qualtrics and we said, hey, we've got this big survey we need to fill out and we need to get about you know a few hundred thousand people to do it. So and Qualtrics said, no problem. I think it was like $3 a pop, right? Um, and they went and recruited uh, for us a, a few hundred thousand people through their panel partners. Whoa. But that, so who's fronting the money? This is very, like 100,000 people. It, it was like $800,000. $3. Yeah. Wow. So, and that money came from Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica. So, so wow. this was the deal, right? Like, but I got to keep all that, and I got to put in a few of the questionnaires I would be interested in the, the data, not the money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the money. The money. Uh, I would. Get, so it was like a, it was almost like a, a, an alternative right route to a grant. Right. It was a little bit unusual uh, in that I had to go form a company to do it. Uh, but my assumption at that point was like, hey, you know what, like. It, uh, I've heard other people do this where they like collect a commercial data set and then they get it blessed back into the university, right? This, I had heard a couple of examples. I'm like, okay, that seems plausible. Why not, right? Uh, terrible idea in retrospect, but like at that point, that, this is the thing. Right? Um, so yeah, like it's a lot of money. Cambridge Analytica is going to spend, you know, 800 grand. Uh, I would collect it, you know, pretty easy to collect. I would have to build these personality models and make predictions. Not that hard. Um, and so that's exactly what we did. Right? So. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up. So, eight, okay. 800K gives you about, what, two, 250K participants? Yeah, about that. Okay. So these people are taking, these people are giving you their personality data and also giving you access to their Facebook and also their Facebook. Correct. And, and they're friends. Exactly. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, all right. So you have 250,000 people and you know their personality and you know their Facebook likes and then you have another... 50 million many? people or so. 50 million? Yeah. Jesus. Okay. So they have another 50 million people and you can predict their personality pretty well, right? Uh, we could make a, a guess at it. It turns out the pretty well bit was like... Not well at all, but like... Uh, uh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah, we'll get to that. We'll yeah, get we'll to get to that. that. Okay, right. But then, in theory, this is what... This, this is, is the idea. The idea. Right. right. And so, like... So, we collect this... So, let's just talk to the 50 million people, right? Because, like, we collected the 50 million people, and we're like, well, we need you to have page likes to predict anything. And it turned out, like, 20% of people don't have a single page like. It's flat out zero. The next most common number of page likes is one. <laughs> The next most common number of page likes is two. So, like, it quickly windled down. Um, the other problem was this was a project only for uh, the United States. So the data set I had to deliver to them was going to be on Americans. So once we, like, did that, like, reduction, we were down to about 30 million people. So the final data set that we tried to deliver to them was, hey, here's 30 million people, and here's our guess at their big five. Okay, okay. Wow. Um so, okay, so you deliver this data set and correct me if I'm wrong, but like this, giving that data to Cambridge Analytica, this is where, this is what Facebook's pissed off at you about, right? Like, because you having the app and getting the friends data, this is just something they let app developers yeah. do back then, right? Like, so, but is is it not the case that they... They would argue, if they were here in, the, in this pod, that their terms of service should have prevented you doing that. 
from sharing. Correct. Now, I do think they likely were pissed off about me for losing them $100 billion. <laughs> water under the bridge. Man. Yeah, water under the bridge. Between friends, what's $100 billion? I agree. Uh, but yes, like certainly the, the argument was like, what did I do wrong? Right. And um, it was this idea that I collected the data. No problem. I got the friends data. No problem. It was the sharing of the data with Cambridge Analytica. Um, now, that was Facebook's fear, right? And that was Facebook needing uh, some reason to be upset with me. Now, the odd thing about this whole story is that, like, if Cambridge Analytica had its own app and collected the data, then that particular violation goes away. But everybody's still yeah. really mad. Yeah, because they, I mean, they funded it. Yeah. So, so in like, a way, like, you were just in a research team with with them. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah, it it is a bit ambiguous. It, uh, like, so I... At the end of the day, I think Facebook did its best to try to, like, do PR, right? Because they were in a really tough spot, right? Uh, This had blown up. These were unintended consequences. Um, So, yes, any technicality or anything they could say, like, I did wrong was going to be the... We're going to point to that. Uh, But how... But I don't think that's what people were upset with me about. I think they were more upset about more legitimate things. How... Okay, so how did it blow up, though? Because I have this hazy recollection of a, a sort of mini blow up. Yes. Where it was like, oh, my God, Ted Cruz has millions of Americans Facebook data. And it was like a little blow up. But yes. then that sort of died down. And then months and months later, year and a half it, later. Came, it just came back in this massive blow up. Uh, yeah. And it was kind of the same the same issues but all of a sudden it just was a much bigger deal so what what actually happened what was the yeah so we finished this project somewhere in like the summer of 2014 right uh and then like we go on our merry way right Cambridge Analytica goes off to do its thing I go off to do my thing uh I will say that like this is where we start to have a lot of trouble uh and it was really regrettable because like the I had, you know, I had done a, several experiments using very similar methods that I got IRB approved before I did the project, right? And that was never a problem. But trying to get this data set blessed by the university that I had collected sort of through commercial activities did raise flags. And part of that was, again, sort of the historical uh, times shifting. So right, the same summer was when Facebook had a lot of negative publicity about the Facebook is making people sad. Mm. And the, that paper caused a lot of concern and people to like reevaluate, like, how do we use Facebook data? Is it appropriate to use Facebook data? Can we do these experiments? Wait, what, what's, was this the study where they manipulated um, there are people's, co- positive versus negative content it, it, in people's feeds? Exactly. And had, the Adam Kramer paper. And the effect size was like, nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally like nothing. Point, point zero one of a percent, but it was millions of participants, so it was exactly. statistically significant. And exactly. yeah, right, right. yeah, yeah. People were really upset about that. Like, they were really upset. Yeah. So, so it's, it's it's the same summer, right? So uh, when we came back to try to get our data set blessed, I think IRB and, our, and Cambridge were like, one person was fine with it, but the other person was like, I don't know. Like, we just had. A lot of concerns raised about how Facebook data is being used. Look at this study, like the Adam Crater paper. So, like, we should be much more critical about this. 
And the end result was I was never able to actually get the data set blessed by the university. Um, and that was a shame because that was like the main reason why we wanted to do the whole thing in the first place was we thought, well, hey, we could collect a really great data set, but it is what it is. Um, Wait, that's so interesting. Like, so the data exists already. You already have the data, yeah. but you're trying to get IRB approval to like publish a study with that data. To is bring, that even ne- necessary? Like, so, I, I don't know quite. Yeah. So I, I think the, our thesis was like, Hey, we collected the data as a company, right? And companies obviously rarely, if ever you seek IRB approval, cause that's not really a requirement. Uh, unless you're in your pharmaceuticals, then it's a different story. Now we wanted to donate the data to the lab. Because I wanted my PhD students be, to be able to use it. I wanted my collaborators to be able to use it, right? Uh, and to donate it to the lab, now you've brought it into the university. Now you need to get approval for this data set. It's almost like a secondary data analysis. But secondary data analysis often relies on the assumption that either the data is IRB exempt, because it's like national data, or that the original data collection was IRB approved. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like, if we had to do it again, we would have done it totally differently and we would have gotten, like, IRB approval before we did anything. Um, mm. But, you know, that's the that was one of the really unfortunate misfires. Um, but I think, like, there's an important piece here where times changed pretty rapidly at that point, right? Because of the Adam Kramer paper, there was a new perspective raised on bad Facebook data. And I think... To answer your question in terms of like the mini blow up and the big blow up, it was a similar situation. So we, summer 2014, we finished a project, right? We fast forward then to December 2015, about a year and change later. And The Guardian publishes the story about how Ted Cruz had got his hands on this data set, right? They're collected through MTurk. And like, yada, yada. Like half the details were wrong, but what they got right was. I collected a data set through the Facebook API, got the friends data, built personality models, gave it to Cambridge Analytica. Um, and I remember that was gut-wrenching, right? Like, I remember laying on my couch, just sick to my stomach in terms of like, holy shit, what is going to happen now? Um, it was the first time I ever got negative press, and I just didn't know, like, what next. Um, so... 2015, were you still, were you Alex Spector or Alex Kogan at that time? So I was, I had... Let's explain that too. Okay, okay. So, so I just became Alex Spector. So the, uh, in 2015, I got married to a a woman I met in uh, Cambridge. um, And uh, we decided that rather than her taking my name or me taking her name, we were going to choose a new last name sensible you know we're so modern and we're like so what should we do right so we're like well we really are like we're both like religious well, there's, and- this, there's this famous music producer who like killed people let's go with, sp- let's go with that. <laughs> so no so it's not that uh so uh we're both like we're, we're we're both religious right and we're both scientists so like what's a motif that's in both and was like oh light right like Berkeley's, uh, like yeah, leather delight, leather yeah, delight, right? Exactly. Yep. Um, yep. The Book of Genesis starts with effectively the same thing. So, like, okay, well, light. So we were like, well, what about light? Should we be the lights, like the Lumieres, if we want to be like a little French? And um, <laughs> at the time, my dad was uh, going through 
a lot of surgeries because he had lung cancer. Um, and we remember, so we were in the hospital in New York and, uh, his, one of his surgeons was a guy named, uh, Brendan Stiles. And we're like, that's just a, such a cool name. <laughs> like I remember me and my brother, like sort of as a coping mechanism, we'd just be like amazed by this guy's name. And he would like, not walk in and be like, my, my name's Dr. Stiles. He'd be like, he'd walk in and be like, Brendan Stiles. And then <laughs> I remember uh, he came in one day after one of my dad's many surgeries and he was like, yeah, so uh, me and uh, this other surgeon named uh, Jason Spector worked at your dad and me and my brother lost it. We're like, do they only hire <laughs> surgeons with really cool names here? <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. So that was where it came from. That's where it came So then I like saw my wife later or my fiance at that point uh, later that day and I'm like, babe. Jason Spector's like, that's perfect. Because <laughs> it's Dr. Trump, right? You're like, it all comes together because of lights. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, cool. it's a cool story. But, like, when all this stuff blew up and you got into the press, it was just, like, I remember somebody remarking, like, yeah, like, he's he's this academic from Russia. He, he sounds like a Bond villain. This yeah. name. Because uh, the movie came out. Like, there was a Bond movie called Spectre that came out. Same spelling, I think, e- literally that year. And it was like the evil organization that ruled the world. <laughs> yeah. So, it's okay. a bad coincidence. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Anyway, back to the story. That yeah. was a cool digression. Okay. So the mini blow up happens. Everybody's upset. They, ha- they think Ted Cruz is using this data to like manipulate people. And- but we should like touch on that because like essentially the idea at that point, I think, was that Ted Cruz, uh, their canvases actually had access to people's predicted personality profiles when they were going canvassing. Correct. And so they could, like, I guess, um, uh, modulate their pitch to the voter depending on what they thought the person's personality was. And, like, I guess, like, yeah, I guess it's two things. It's the idea that, like, a lot of people upset about this hate Ted Cruz and don't want him to have any advantage, but also this idea that, oh, well, this is like, this is really sort of manipulative. Yeah. So funny story about this. Ted Cruz never actually used the data or ever had the yeah, data. I mean, I'm not surprised because like, what, what are you, like, what are you, you going to do? Ted Cruz doesn't know, like you give Ted Cruz a personality profile on the big five. So, so, what does he know? So the thing yeah. is they did try. So like I learned this like years oh, later. Interesting. Uh, Cause I talked to somebody in their campaign once everything blew up. Um, what they did was they worked with SurveyMonkey. They collected a giant sample of survey responses where people filled out the actual Big Five. And then they used people's actual responses and to try to canvas them. So, like, this was better, right? Like, this is not predicted scores. This is people's actual responses. And they tried this, I think, in South Carolina. It was one of the states uh, pretty early on. And they tried it in one area. And then they tried more traditional... Uh, canvassing in another area to compare and they found the personality approach hurt them it actually was worse than like the standard approach and they abandoned it that was the only time they used it and they moved on the facebook data never really came into it but the so the the reporter that broke the story knew somebody at cambridge and the person at cambridge had told him about like hey there was this facebook data set collected it was by sel and so he kind of connected the dots so like sort of it was a bit of that speculation um but the story came out the thing that kind of like 
ultimately surprised me was I thought like life's over, things are going to be terrible. There wasn't much hoopla about it. There was a couple of stories that got picked up, but then there were literally like four other outlets actually picked it up. Nobody really cared. Uh, Cambridge was mostly okay with it. They're like, well, don't do politics. <laughs> You've learned your lesson. <laughs> uh, there just wasn't much, right? Um, and so the story kind of came and went. The big consequence was Facebook came knocking and basically said, everybody delete the data and like kind of ended my relationship with them. Because at that point, I was still working really closely with them, trying to publish papers. Uh, and that was really, really regrettable because like it screwed over some PhD students. Uh, a lot of folks have worked on those data sets for a long, long time and they clawed it all back. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Le- legally, I know that you did delete it uh, and we'll probably get to this part of the story soon because I, I was working with you like right after that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I never saw any of that data. I probably would have if you still had it, but um, it did fa- could Facebook legally tell you to delete that data? Or not, was uh, it just the case of like, I'm not going to go against this company that's like yeah. this behemoth? Yeah, I mean, like Facebook... Can they legally tell me to delete the data? I don't know. But I do know <laughs> that Facebook is one of the most well-pocketed companies in the world. And I'm me. And I figured in any legal battle, they were just going to outspend me. <laughs> right? They could bury me forever. Uh, Seems likely. Yeah. So th- there's no choice. Like in those cases, honestly, if you get yourself into a situation with U.S. courts, unfortunately the bigger bank account can often win mm-hmm. by just making you spend yourself into bankruptcy. So we we luckily saw that that, that, that was what was coming. It still cost us $50,000, I believe, to try to negotiate with them sort of a settlement. And the only thing I was really trying to ask for is like, let my PhD students like finish the papers they're writing. Um, Ultimately, they're like, if you take your name off of everything, we'll consider it. That was the best they would give me. I took my name off of everything. They mostly did not consider it. So that was unfortunate, but, you know. Okay, so this is fascinating to me. So I think I met you, like, right – I met you again right at this time um, when you were starting Philometrics. Yes. Okay, so – I don't know. Is this going to be just too much of a tangent for the pod? So can you briefly explain – what Philometrics was, um, what your relationship with Facebook was at that time, and yeah. what them telling you to delete the Facebook data, like how that sort of all played out at that time. Because it it really was just sort of like, oh, that's over, right? Like at that point, I deleted the data. Because you were still sort of friendly with people at Facebook at that time, as far as I know. And I, I know you were still on Facebook because we had a fantasy basketball. Yes. <laughs> Great. Yes. Uh, okay. So, all right. Just talk us through like that time. So I guess, um, yeah, this company, you, yeah. I guess through your experience with the social media data, you decided to like sort of almost like leave academia, right? And start this startup company. Yeah. So the, going through this experience, right, it wasn't fun in terms of the sort of the consequence afterwards in terms of like, oh, I couldn't get the data blessed by Cambridge um, and everything once the story started to break. But the thing that kind of really gripped me was that I found that, man, these tech companies have much better data sets to answer every question I could be interested in as a social psychologist, 
right? I am at the kids' table as an academic. And that's a weird place to be, right? Like, if, if you want to be, like, a scholar of studying prosociality and kindness and happiness, and you want to be a world-leading scholar, right? Um, knowing that, yeah, you what you have access to is, like, barely scratching the surface compared to what folks have in, like, Menlo Park, um, wasn't great. So I'm like, well, how do we... How do we do better, right? And this is where the Adam Kramer experience, again, was really like informative because once the Adam Kramer paper got published, right, Facebook started to really pull back in terms of how willing it was to work with academics and publish papers, right? They, start, they said things like, you can't publish in Science, Nature, PNAS. They get so much uh, press coverage and it will go bad for us. Uh, there would be like active questions internally of like, why are we even like publishing papers? Like, what good does this do for the company? Um, so I'm like, okay, well, if I want to like have access to big data sets and like answer these interesting questions, it has to be my company. And it, because then the person in charge cares about social science and then we'll do social science, right? And so Philometrics came out of that sort of initial idea of like, we need to build something so we have the data sets ourselves. And, uh, since the time I was in Dacker's lab, I was building service systems, like sort of like things like Qualtrics. Um, and we had a version that we were building for the lab in my Cambridge lab. And we're like, okay, so this is probably the best thing we could like commercialize. So then I'm like, okay, let me go build one from scratch for the company because we didn't want to like take things out of the university. So we started from scratch and we just built Philometrics. Um, now the, the interesting thing with Philometrics that we're like, not only are we going to be a survey system, but, you know, there's an interesting idea here that is much more general with the, the Facebook data we were doing. Uh, forget the personality bits. What if you could forecast uh, people's survey responses? Because the methods we use as social psychologists is we go pe- ask people some questions and then we look at correlations, right? That's a pretty common method. But the problem is it's usually just that North American undergrad. But what if I could, like, ask a small sample the specific questions I care about and then know how many more people would respond to it and study those variabilities? So that was kind of the, the idea with Philometrics. And we're going to use the Facebook data set we collected as sort of that extension sample. where We'd be able to predict how 50 million people or 30 million people would answer your survey. So, and, and we're working okay, right? We actually had some, like, pretty promising indications that it could work. Um, at the aggregate level. Though, at right? the aggregate, yeah, totally. Aggregate level, group differences, things like that. Um, and that's what we learned a lot about of like, you know, and how uh, variability evens out when you aggregate up and things like that. Um, but when December 2015 hit, all that had to go away, right? Because that whole data set, we had to basically delete um, and not be able to use it for Facebook, for the, for the project that we were planning to do. Um, and then we tried Twitter data, which didn't work as well. And I was looking for something else to try to figure out. Yeah. So I spent the next yeah. couple of years trying to find a different way to do it. Yeah, that's when I, that's, that was the project I worked on with you is seeing if it worked with Twitter data. Twitter is interesting, though, because like the, Twitter has taken over like big data social science. Like every, every kind of paper you see now is like Twitter data. Yeah, that's because Facebook <laughs> closed off the fire hose. Uh, Facebook totally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is like my, my really unfortunate contribution to science is I actually stunted science. Hmm. Because had, <laughs> I had, had I not come around, I had Adam Kramer not come around, I think a lot more academics uh. would have access to Facebook data, which is honestly just substantially hmm. richer and more accurate than Twitter. But instead we have yeah, Twitter. Yeah, well that's, that was, 
I remember that was kind of the conclusion we came to uh, about Twitter data. And I, I kind of, um, I was actually talking with uh, Rob Willer about this recently because uh, he's getting interested in Twitter data. And I just remember, I kind of was telling him our experience with it. And I remember you saying something like, look, the average person from Iowa who's on Twitter is nothing like the average person from Iowa. Yeah. Uh, and this is like, this is a pretty key problem yeah. for Twitter data. Mm-hmm. It's just a much smaller user base, right? Um, yeah. And then like, so anyway, so that was kind of the philometrics plan, but the, but the dream was like, how do we, uh, how do we do better? And how do like me as an academic get access sort of to the adults table to do research? Um, that's, I think mostly why I'm still doing industry, right? The, I'm still kind of chasing that idea that like the, the big research questions I'm interested in, which have evolved a little bit. Um, but you, uh, you, I mean, at that time, okay, because you actually got some pretty serious venture capital, right? Yeah, Invested I mean, I, in your, I got half a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess yeah. I mean, to me, to me, that sounds like a lot, a lot of money, but maybe not in the Silicon Valley world. So okay, so like, but that's exciting, right? Like, yeah. I think for, I mean, because you were still relatively young at that time. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think like. You're definitely when I met you at that time, uh, it, it seemed like you were like, okay, this is this is going to be my life now. I'm like going to run this company and be a like in the tech field. And technically, you were still a professor at Cambridge, right? You still Correct. had students. Yeah, yeah. So I I started to I think like three three to four years into Cambridge, I decided you know what I'm going to go try to make this company thing a go, right? Um, and see what we could build. But I still had PhD students that I wanted to make sure that, like, I promised them when they joined that I would be their supervisor, and I didn't want to leave them afloat. So I stayed on an extra two years at Cambridge, uh, worked kind of remote um, to finish out the PhD students. And, like, some of them, as you know, would visit me at uh, San Francisco, would stay with us, um, just to continue that experience. Um, but yeah, the, the main motive was to like make sure they all got to the finish line, and they did. So I was really happy. And now some of them are your best friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're basically all in our fantasy basketball league. Yeah. <laughs> um, so okay, but then it died down for a while, and then it just exploded. And like, what what happened? Was it Trump? Like, like yeah. tell the story of how this thing sort of became. Yeah, how how it came to wipe a hundred. Billion dollars, yeah. So it's Facebook share price. I think the the story that was told in March 2018 was more or less the same as the one in December 2015, hmm. right? Oh, it was three years later. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, wow, it was three years later. Same story, and the story had actually been published numerous times since then, with like very little care, right? Like once Trump got elected, um, Cambridge Analytica. I'd like had worked with him. People like just you know would try to connect the dots, right? There'd be some conspiracy theories about me on the internet, but like nobody really cared. But then you get to 2018, and you got to remember where we were like as a society in the country. We're a year into the Mueller investigation, right? And everybody's at least on the liberal end uh, is expecting a smoking gun between the connection between Trump and Russia. Right, because that's where what everybody's thinking about, but it hasn't come yet. Right, nothing had come about, um, and also at the exact same time, you've got Facebook 
under siege from Congress about the Russian troll farms, right? Because remember, they're like mm-hmm. St. Petersburg mm-hmm. Internet Institute and all that good stuff, right? And the so the story kind of resurfaces exactly at this perfect moment in time where you could actually say the words Facebook, Russia, and Trump all in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. And that really captured people's imaginations. Um, the nutty thing was like the New York Times never actually said Trump used the data, right? The, the most they said was Trump linked data analytics firm, right? That was it. Uh, they didn't explicitly try to make a connection between uh, the Facebook data I collected and Trump winning the election. Um, they never made a direct connection with Russia other than like, you know, Russian academic, Russian-born academic. Now I would have to point out people, oh, it was Moldova. And they were like, okay, Soviet-born academic. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, you guys are better than me. Um, the Guardian was a bit more spin doctory. They had like an infographic of like the Russian government pointing at my face. I'm like, okay, guys, mm. that's the... But the... But I think the... They took the same facts and allowed for folks to fill in the blanks of like con- making the conclusion that, hey, this Facebook data was used in the Trump campaign and this is how he got elected. And that was a powerful story where like you could see the shades of Russia and like there's the that secret connection. Um, but it also kind of explained away this like crazy fact that Donald Trump had won the U.S. presidency. And that, like, Brexit happened, right? These are two events that were, like, really surprising to people like you and me, Paul. Uh, And folks are trying to reconcile and explain it. And this was a really neat explanation that's got Russia in there and got Facebook in there. It was really, really, like, a clean, nice explanation. And that caught fire. Yeah, it was a little bit... It was a little bit crazy. And I, I... So I have actually heard from somebody who probably should know, because I, I think they've worked or consulted at Facebook, that the Trump campaign did use Facebook-targeted totally. advertising yes. to, to strong effect, right? So, but, like, this is kind of the Facebook advertising that, like... Everybody does. My understanding that, like, I had access to when I was in a band. Yes. Right? Like, so we, we were able to say, okay, I want you to put our, like, new clip... A, on the wall of people who like this band or like that band yeah. or whatever, right? Like, so it's pretty... Um, and I think, like, uh, I heard, you know, some officials from the Trump campaign went to Austin and... Uh, or, no, Facebook sent some people to work with the Trump campaign basically just to teach them how to use these Correct. services that are available to anybody. And then, I guess, like, if you write the article and and you add that little spicy detail as well and it, like, nobody really understands... The technology or what's going on and i guess you're right that you can just build up this this picture and get people very fired up because i mean i do think yeah probably trump doesn't win the election none of this blows up and none of this ever happens uh even though like there's like zero evidence that this data helped get trump elected or was it even used by trump yeah so like now we're a few years past it right lots of investigations later the general conclusion is we don't think he used it. Definitely wasn't used in Brexit. And there's nothing special here. There's no, this is like really all standard stuff. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I, yeah, so, 
this is one side of the story that has always sort of stuck with me um, because like I kind of knew a lot more than most people about what actually was going on and what what these people were trying to talk about and what was going on behind the scenes but and I had some journalists sort of contacting me uh, because I was working with you at the time and it was on my LinkedIn that it was so they were like contacting me and at, at one point making these weird threats if I didn't like talk to them that they would put my name in these stories and yeah. they're like oh you should meet with me for coffee I'm, I'm sure you don't want your name in my next story about this and stuff like that I was like whatever like um but anyway like what what really stood out to me is just the incentives that are driving these journalists uh, when they sort of write these stories and sort of tell the public what to think about these things, right? So, I mean, like you said, people really wanted to have some explanation for how Trump could have happened because it was, it was so shocking to, like, mm-hmm. good liberals like us. However, like, from the journalist's point of view, there's enormous incentives for them to have found the big story. Correct. Right? Like, so, like just personal professional incentives but also just like i don't know like if you're if you're an investigative journalist like you really want to be the one cracking the big story that really matters and like and i for some reason that had never clicked for me before that like every sort of like breathless headline i was reading has been written by people who are like highly motivated to sort of be convincing me that they've found something important going on in the world. So, you know, it's funny. There's a strong parallel to science here because we like to think about scientists as these really impartial, objective investigators. But like we know like really well that like there's all these biases we all have because there's this strong incentive to try to get things published in the top journals and the top journals will publish things that are surprising, counterintuitive, right? The sexy finding. It's literally, that's the common term. Um, and so, like, lo and behold, a lot of, like, these splashy findings don't replicate because there are a lot of biases that we as humans, trying to do science, right, where we're, like, the leading experts, uh, fail to observe and do. And, like, the, journalism's really similar, right? Because this was, like, the science paper in journalism, right? This is the big headline. You're going to maybe win the award for... Um, or get the next job, right? Like, if you break the story, maybe then you can get the job at the New York Times, right? And, yeah, I mean, like, that's unfortunately how a lot of life works. And, I mean, to me, the what was maybe the most frustrating part of the experience, but certainly also very educational, was like that I, it did not matter that I was right. <laughs> really yeah. really did not matter. right like i would try no, to... i mean <laughs> that mirrors a lot of academia too yeah. but yeah right like i know i really yeah. try to explain that no guys like there's all these scientific reasons for why like even if they used it it could not have helped right and it's also like it doesn't make sense like it's 30 million people but the facebook has this platform where you could target everybody why wouldn't you just use that like it doesn't make sense um, and they were like that I deleted the data and I think Cambridge Analytica deleted the data right um, it didn't make sense and it, and that part just did not matter well the I mean that was that was part of what made it a perfect storm I think because the people writing about it really didn't understand the stats or the, the actual yeah. data or the technology that they were supposedly trying to write about 
um, yeah, it seemed to me. So just to that point, I remember I was talking to one of the Guardian reporters from San Francisco. I think the one that was trying to hunt you down. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, so she was saying that, like, hey, even if they deleted the data, maybe they kept the model and they could use the model. And I'm like, well, what do you think a model is? Like, what do you think it does? And she had no idea. And she admitted she had yeah, no idea. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, how are you going to write about something and speculate that the model could, like, do this if you have no idea to even contemplate what the model is or how it would work, right? And I found a lot of that. Yeah, so, I mean, I like, th- w- this podcast is pro-investigative journalism. Like, yes. I'm glad we, I'm glad these people are out there doing their thing. But it, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it was just striking... It was just striking, like, how wrong they got it, A, and B, how all the incentives had just kind of aligned for them to get it to get it wrong uh, in this, yeah, quite, like, way that was kind of obvious to me at the time. But, okay, so what what then was the actual fallout? Because I, I know that, like, yeah, Facebook's, like, market capitalization dropped $100 billion and in a day or something like that so like what was that like when like this all sort of and what was the what was the sort of sum total of all the fallout um for you personally because i know like yeah like i like i know like a lot of people in silicon valley won't sort of work with you now and stuff like that so like yeah just take us through like the the closing act (laughs) of this side (laughs) yeah yeah um well, I mean, like, on my personal side, uh, things, like, definitely started to suck a lot more, um, right? You know, I had metrics. I basically had to wind it down, right? Uh, investors pulled out. Clients pulled out. I mean, like, they would be privately saying, like, look, this really sucks, and we think it's really unfair, and we like you. Um, but, hey, we need to protect our situation, right? Which I totally understood. Like, I, I didn't hold that against anybody, Um and so, like, that kind of had to get wound down. Um, I think my any prospect of going back to academia kind of came and went at that point. Um, are you sure, though? Like, are you sure? Because w- what makes you say that? Like, who has, who has told you that? Like, did the dean of Cambridge say, look, Alex? No, no. I mean, like, and Cambridge was pretty good about this, where they, like, let me finish out my contract, right? Um, they were relatively neutral, Um but I think, like, this was a hot mess, right? They were also under, like, a lot of press siege. Who's interested in that, right? This is, like, it was really stressful for me. It was really stressful for a lot of people associated with me. Um, and, like, every once in a while, I'll ask my friends still in academia, I'm like, hey, like, am I ever, like, mentioned in the departments? And, like, and occasionally I am, and not positively, right? Like, folk, like if folks know me well, uh, it might be a different story, where I think, like, imagine Dacker says nice things. Uh, imagine you, if somebody confronts you about it, you'll probably be like, hey, well, I don't think he was a Russian spy. Um, but most people walked away... What are you talking about? I totally think we're a Russian spy. We've had this talk. <laughs> yeah. But I think most folks that are just, like that don't know me personally, um, their opinion of the situation is the one that almost everybody got, where, like, Cambridge Analytica swung the election for Donald Trump through this really shady data set that this really shady professor from Cambridge, Alex Kogan, collected. And that's what they know, and that's what they remember. And that's a really big uphill battle to try to win. 
Okay, maybe, but I have also met academics who don't know you at all and were, like, instantly skeptical uh, about, like, the power of these models. Like, I think, like, enough people know uh, how shitty we are at predicting (laughs) stuff and how actually manipulating people in the world that they read those stories and were like, "Eh, I don't think so. Uh, So, I don't know. I... I, I hope you're right. You could, I kind of think you could get a job in academia again if you wanted, but you probably don't want to now. Uh, we may test this theory in the future. For now, we're okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, but yeah, like, um, look, it was enormously stressful. It was financially disastrous, right? Like, I have huge debts, uh, legal debts, because, you know, got subpoenaed by the U.S. government. Um, you don't talk to the U.S. government yourself. You need to have lawyers. You, like... There's so much risk that you will mess up in answering the U.S. government, and that's what you'll actually get in trouble for. You need lawyers. Uh, Did you do that thing where you like went to the Capitol and spoke? To, yeah, like testified to Congress. Testified to Congress. Oh my God, what yeah. was that like? That was really interesting and actually a very positive experience. Uh, my parliamentary testimony not so positive because they were really hard on like the Russian spy angle. Um, and like, didn't really understand what I meant by if you average data together, it's not individual data anymore. You don't know what each person said. Like, but uh, Congress I was actually really um, surprised by in just how friendly everybody was, but also how collaborative they were. Like, it is not what like I was expecting with like the Democrats pointing guns at the Republicans. They all were like really cordial with each other, really friendly with one another, really nice to me, uh, really respectful. Um, yeah. And the other thing that really struck me was like, these folks are very good at emotional intelligence. They knew exactly how to work me to make me feel really comfortable, right? <laughs> like I walked out with this really positive experience. Uh, they're all like the LeBron Jameses of emotional intelligence. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Like, obviously, they won't know the details, a lot of the specifics, because they deal with a thousand issues. But they're very good at that. Extremely good at that. And I was really impressed. That's 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 cool. Well, yeah. at least that was a positive experience. Yeah. Uh, but what's the net net? Like, uh, academics are much less likely to be able to access Facebook data. And the... Facebook lost some money, regained it all, right? Like now its stock price has never been higher. Um, The other thing I think they got was they actually got a really interesting protection to build up its garden and uh, protect against competition. Because like the, like social networks are really interesting because they're pretty different from Phone networks, right? Like, so, like, imagine you use Verizon, I use AT&T. We could still call and talk to each other, right? Those networks are open and that, like, we could, like, communicate. Um, This allows for, like, new uh, carries to come on, right? So there could be, like, 100 different phone companies because they they don't need to get all of your friends on. Social networks are not that, right? Like, if I'm on Facebook and you're on, like, Twitter, we can't talk to each other. So there's an, once you get everybody on, you have this enormous moat and like a new company can't come in and really disrupt you unless they figure out a really great way to uh, get all of your friends. But the, uh, now, so like what could Congress do to try to like stimulate this? They could be like, well, Facebook, you have to be like the phone companies. 
where you have to allow for people to like from other social networks to be able to communicate with your members and access that data. And now Facebook could be like, well, no, no, no. Cambridge Analytica. That's what happened last time we tried to allow people to access their data. And so it's an, this amazing protection against people pushing for them to open up to allow for competition in this industry. So I think like ultimately Facebook reinforced its position. Um, I'm not sure if they like appreciate me for this in any way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, but I think it, in, the, in the long run, it has helped them. Yeah. And so, I mean, you mentioned before we started recording that you consider yourself a cautionary tale uh, for uh, other academics. I mean, what do you think the main lessons are yeah. uh, from, from this whole kerfuffle? Yeah. So like, what got me to go astray, right? It was being really naive, uh, thinking everyone has good intentions, um, not doing enough vetting of SCL and Cambridge Analytica. Because if I really vetted them and I really thought about what's the worst case scenario, I probably wouldn't have done the project because I could have maybe anticipated, oh, wait, well, these people work with folks that like are going to be shady, non-shady, and just think about the worst case. Um, but I thought, but I was a careful academic, right? Like I was not someone that was like doing p hacking, right? I was like pretty staunchly against the p hacking. I was thinking big sample, let's find real findings, right? Like, and yet I still got into this because it was a bit of a novel situation, and my openness to experience, and I think that's something a lot of scientists share, and sort of this curiosity, blinded me to really thinking through. How can this go wrong? Right. And like, there's some things that make us pretty cautious, like IRBs, right? Like they're great because they're like a protective force. But then like, there's a lot of these opportunities now where like, it's not well tracked territory where we know what to do, right? Like working with fake company data, right? Like, do I get this blessed or not get this blessed? It's already exists. Um, and most IRBs will be fine, right? So I think like if I'm a young scientist or an old scientist and just kind of listening to this, uh, what I would try to take away and apply is like, think about the worst case scenario and how can this go wrong? And what's the worst article that could be written about this? And consider your steps. Because um, I think if I had done that, I'd be in a great situation today. I'd still have a great relationship with Facebook. I'd be publishing interesting papers. Um, and I would not be infamous as like, you know, a Bond villain. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting to me that you mention um, considering the worst case scenario because, so my um, my amateur psychoanalysis of you, Alex, and I'm I'm giving you this for free. Thank you. Is that um, sort of on the uh, like on the spectrum of promotion focus? versus prevention focus you are a, a, like any this incredible outlier in terms of promotion focus. totally um so like quick anecdote so alex actually you have this enormous alaskan malamute dog <laughs> uh called rocket uh, and like he's in how much does he weigh like it's the biggest dog in the world he's about 170 pounds right now yeah so 170 pounds worth of basically wild animal <laughs> and and this dog uh, bit me 
but that's not even the story I want to tell. <laughs> this time, so when when you were working for this uh, company, Philometrics, um, you had hired a saleswoman, uh, Stephanie, who I, I'm still good friends with, and at one point. You had, I think, a new dog and Rocket was like fighting this new dog and this saleswoman who was like working from her, like a home office had to use mace to stop Rocket killing this other dog. I do remember and that. And it's like, you, man, you never think of what can go wrong. <laughs> never. And I just think like, yeah, like, I don't know if it's just not in you or something like that. But I think, like, this is why, you know, potentially we would have made such a good team because I'm always thinking about the worst-case scenario and what could go wrong. And I just think it's not really in you. It's not natural. No, it's absolutely not natural. Uh, no, you're 100% right. Um, I will tell you that I've, uh, I've this experience was so traumatic and so, like, ridiculous that, like, I'm much more able to overcome my natural instincts for being so promotion focused and think through Like there's been a lot of projects I've just turned down where like anything politics, people have come in like, Hey, do you want? Nope. Not interested. Um, anything where the, the potential other party is not going to be the most reputable and going to be like generally like positive and like aligns with my moral values and sort of the, the moral values of the press <laughs> Uh, I'm not interested just in case I've seen where this goes. Um, yeah. And, and like, look, it's probably a non-replicable situation, right? Like there's probably nothing I can do to try to replicate what happened. Right. There's, there's probably nothing I could possibly come up with that will cost another company a hundred billion dollars. <laughs> and get me all over the press not. as a Russian spy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've peaked, probably. I've peaked on that particular dimension, I hope. Um, but I think that, like, look, the promotion focused and being, like, curious and, like, being willing to, like, sort of, like, not think about the worst case scenario, it's not an unusual trait for academics. Um and that can get yeah, us into well, trouble. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's also good to have people like that, uh, you know, um, willing to, you know, do big projects and creative things and, and think outside the box and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I still think like Philometrics was a cool idea. Uh, and like, as I said to you one, one, in one of our first meetings, it's like, okay, well, finally finally maybe a social psychologist is creating something like some kind of technology mm-hmm. uh yeah uh not turns out no but like you tried you know <laughs> um because we, different technology now you know i just don't like i just don't think ultimately our research contributes that much to the world and i don't know i thought it was exciting Agreed. and cool that you were um yeah trying to actually build something well i appreciate it and like and it, it is the double-edged sword Right, like my extreme prom- promotion focused was like it has really helped me. It has made me really open to new research ideas and projects, and like chasing kind of a low probability of success, but like interesting studies rather than taking the safe road. Right, I did a PhD in Hong Kong for it. Right, that is not the safe road. Um, and I think if I had taken the safe road, I would not have been a faculty member at Cambridge at 26, which is like really unusual. Right, like I recognize it's really unusual and like a low probability event. Um, but like, this is the other side of it, 
Right. If you're so promotion focused, totally. this is the other thing that could happen. I mean, this is, yeah, this is why we need IRBs, right? Like, because that's constantly, that's their MO is like, what's the worst that could happen? Um, Correct. What do you think, just I want to end on, like, just thinking about if somebody knows all my Facebook likes, they can probably figure out who I am. Like, it's pretty unlikely that there's anybody else in the world who has the exact Facebook likes as me. So, for example, say if you get a data set and you're like, okay, this data point, this is all their Facebook likes, you could probably figure out that that's me because you could get on Facebook yourself, go to that page and say, okay, um, there's 30 people that like this page or there's 100 people that like this page. How many of those people show up in the likes of this other page? So it's, it's definitely not perfectly anonymous this data and I, I i remember i have a good friend who i think was probably in your data set i think they signed up for some personality app or maybe it was the david's data set that you were talking about earlier and they were sort of upset about it like and and i, I kind of like talked to them about how no like it probably didn't really help trump it's not it's not as a very, and, and like it kind of they felt a bit better about it but they definitely had this feeling of like uh i've been violated like this is a violation of my privacy Mm. i don't like the idea that my data is being passed around to these companies and these people are using it for things that i didn't necessarily agree to so what what would you say to somebody like that like what what where do you stand on that kind of stuff now yeah yeah i mean it's i think that's like a really legitimate response and like when everything went down and I like kind of reflect on like, why are people upset with me? Right? Like if you want to be the most dismissive, it's like, well, they're only upset with you because they think you got Trump elected. Right. And there's certainly people like that. Right. Um, but I think like if you get past that layer, which isn't overly legitimate, um, a lot of folks just felt violated. They, it's exactly the feeling that your friend described where like, it's icky and uncomfortable to think like, there's stuff I've done that other people now know and can like use, right? Um, and that is a really uncomfortable reality of the modern era because that's like pretty much everything we do, right? All of our digital fingerprints, everything from our geo data to app data to social media data, right? All this stuff is being used and reused usually to like sell us stuff. Um, and it is broadly shared, right? Like that was one of the great discoveries like I made when I started doing these projects or like there's a lot of consumer data sets out there. But like in terms of like the things that we buy, the, the memberships that we have that are just sold left and right. Forget the social media stuff, right? It's like the newer stuff, but there's been a lot. Um, I think that's the one thing I really kind of appreciated about the whole experience. Because um, like data scandals have like come, come and gone. And there's been like much more serious... Uh, data scandals from like an actual harm perspective, like the there's like serious breaches of like email passwords, right? Um, if you remember the Ashley Madison uh, breach of like that was definitely people not wanting to be revealed that they're on this website, right? Because oh, yeah. they're like in a pretty morally questionable situation. Oh, and the, I mean uh, Edward ex- Snowden's uh, allegations yeah. about the the NSF. I mean. Yeah, that that was NSA. NS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Good one. A little no, different from the NSA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, a little more shady. Um, yeah, the, which that was really interesting to me how quickly everybody forgot about that, where it was like, oh, the NSA is collecting all your data. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, well, so, well, what do we do? And it's like, well, not even Obama knows what's going on. And, and everybody was like, oh, well, I guess that's just the world we live in. So, so this is what was interesting, right? Because like there had been many previous data scandals or like data breaches uh, that were much more serious, but people had gotten over them very quickly. Um, I think what was positive about this scenario was that people actually started to like think much more about like, hey, what data is there out there about me, right? Like how is it being used, right? And I think people asked the right questions. They asked them for the wrong reasons because they thought like, hey, Trump got elected and there was this really clear, visceral, negative outcome that they could like finally ground and connect to data being out there. Um, And it's unfortunate that that particular outcome isn't real. But I think the questions that motivated and sort of the concern that motivated was a good thing. And I think like folks are like much more aware of the realities that we all live in in terms of data changing hands and how it's being used. and I think that's ultimately a positive outcome. Um, you know, I, I recently talked to a reporter and he was saying that, like, you know, somebody he was talking to related to uh, all of this said, like, you know, yes, maybe like the, the Trump thing wasn't real and the Brexit thing wasn't real. But at the end of the day, people became a lot more aware. So, like, the, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze. Um, I'm a little bit collateral damage in that particular, like, vision of reality. Um, yeah, the, but I think like the orange peel. In that, uh, I'm the orange peel. But I think your friend like is asking the right questions and is feeling very legitimate feelings. Like all feelings are legitimate, but like it's a very reasonable response. And I think it's important to follow through and think through like, all right, what does this mean for how I live my life? Because there's some tough choices to be made um, and some real introspection in terms of like, what am I going to be okay with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you watch the social dilemma? I did not watch the social dilemma. Yeah. It's interesting. I like I it's interesting to me because like I have friends that have just left social media because of that movie. And maybe it's because of the experience working for you working with you and uh, like it wasn't it was all just pretty obvious stuff to me. Like it was like, well, h- how do you use Facebook and not realize you're getting targeted advertising? Like how like how do you not know that you're constantly getting targeted ads and they're you know that you're the product because that that was their whole like big tagline is like you know if you're not paying for it you're the product uh and it's like well yeah like i remember you saying once that like and and it's interesting because not that many people think about it this way but like yeah like you sign up for facebook and you're basically getting this service for free and the deal is that they give you this service for free and they get your data and they can sell you ads with that data. And, and like, when I think about it that way, it's like, yeah, like obviously, but not everybody, not everybody thinks about it that way. No, not everybody has that relationship with those platforms. And I guess ultimately we all should like, and if like, yeah, so my friends that are not comfortable with that and want to leave, they should leave. Yeah. It's a, you know, Facebook and Google cost billions of dollars a year to run. That money has to come from somewhere. And if it's free, like it's you are absolutely the product. Um, I think the thing that like really surprised me and kind of taught me about my own blind spots was I really did think a lot of the stuff was obvious. 
right? And that was kind of the reason why, like, I think we were like, so okay doing the project. Like everybody knows this. Uh, I think looking back now, I think you, myself, and many other folks that we know are in a pretty privileged position that we we are in an environment that like motivates us to think about these things in a pretty critical manner or we interact with these companies in a pretty critical uh, way where we do know this stuff. But I think the vast majority of folks um, have not had this particular privilege and this stuff isn't like then so obvious. Um, but it's an important conversation to be had. It's truly an important conversation to be had because this is the new normal of how a lot of things are sold and how a lot of money is made. So... Yeah. And I mean, in your role, pushing that conversation forward, I mean, do you think you would describe yourself as an American hero? <laughs> Maybe a Soviet hero. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 hero. No, no, no. Yeah. No, like, I'm in no way, like, because uh, this was not like a volitional actions where my goal was to expose the the deep-seated underbelly of social media, right? This was all an accident. Like, had I had any idea, I would have never done it. Um, I remember one reporter tried to call me a whistleblower. I'm like, that is ridiculous. I mean, no, I didn't blow any whistles, right? You guys came to me, and I'm mostly, like, dazed and confused about how the world it got that's here. That's the rebrand, man. I'm a whistleblower. I, you guys, I, no, I understand. Yeah, and the whistleblowers invi- involved in the story were masterful rebranders. Uh, I just don't have the stomach for that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I, that's probably that's probably it, man. I thank you so much for chatting. That I, I I learned some stuff that I didn't know. I, I think it's going to be really interesting for people um, to sort of hear, have the curtain uh, pulled back a little bit. Um, good luck in our fantasy basketball league. Uh, I I destroyed you last week, but you know, yeah, because all- <laughs> LeBron and AD were injured. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's Wh- true. Who's number one by record in the league, Paul? Who's number one? See, all this gets edited out. I, it's the podcast is going to end right after I said I destroyed you. So, if you have any final words that don't involve like the, adding the context to my victory, um, now would be the time. Final words. So, like, the Russian spy bet was, like, the most ridiculous thing. It might be viewed externally as the scariest. But I got to say, like, in some ways, the media did me a giant favor with that. Because, of like, a lot of the folks that knew me, like yourself, right, uh, might have been, like, this seems plausible and credible up until it got to that point. And I think a lot, then I got a lot of emails and phone calls of support of folks who are like, yeah, when they got to the Russia spy, but there's like, there, there's no way. There is no way this is true. And so, like, I think it, like, it did help to at least assuage a lot of the concerns that, like, folks that are close to me uh, had. Um, and that was really great to see sort of the outreach of support from, like, friends I've had and family, obviously family, but, like, friends I've had for a long time. Um in a time of deep crisis. So uh, I will say that I'm really grateful to you as a friend that I think you, you didn't excommunicate me when this all went down or like separate. You still let no, me stay we, in the fantasy basketball yeah, league. We need the numbers to make up the league. <laughs> what are we gonna do? <laughs> We've lost enough souls. 
No, like, yeah, yeah I, I mean, yeah, that was absurd, and, you know, you're a good guy. So, why, yeah, obviously. Appreciate yeah. it. Anyway, yeah, um, thanks for coming on. Thanks again. Um, talk to you soon. Yes, sir. <laughs>